Welcome to Disability Done Different, and this time, it's different. I'm Roland Nofala, my co-host for this special series of three episodes is Sally Coddington. We've got a cheesy sort of film noir, private investigator type theme going, and we're doing business case investigations. We're looking at services and particularly people that are thinking differently, that are taking the sector in places that are interesting, that are profitable, hence the business case investigation piece, and that we think you'll find highly enlightening. Enjoy. Business case. Investigations. Episode 2. A Leap of Faith and a Loss of Control. This week's BCI brief could be seen as diving into the deep end. And Roland and Sally, you might find yourselves swimming around till your fingers get all pruny. But here goes. Your case, if you choose to open it, is to interview Richard Orr from Inclusion WA to investigate, is it possible to run a successful NDIS business where everything is built on trust? Do you accept this assignment? Absolutely. This is one case I'd love to crack. Yeah, let's do it. So tell us about your journey so far, Richard. What brings you to Osborne Park? So I'm originally from Scotland, uh, the northeast of Scotland, Aberdeenshire, and I was lucky enough to meet my now wife in Edinburgh when she was living over there. She's a Western Australian girl, and she brought me back to Perth as a souvenir. So here I am. Uh, working for Inclusion WA and Australian Inclusion Group and I've been involved with this organisation almost the whole time that I've lived in Australia since 2009. But you um, you started life as a support worker, did you not? Yeah, so I, I actually worked for an organisation called Enable Scotland on a part-time basis while I was studying for my Masters in Glasgow. And um, yeah, at the time it was a nice uh, nice job to do while I was studying. My path was slightly different at the time. I was I had my eyes on more of a kind of a corporate kind of lifestyle. And um, I, I was doing the work because I was introduced to, to it from a friend of mine who was actually getting support from an organization. Um, he himself had an intellectual disability. And I ended up working with a number of men who had previously been living in some of the large institutions in the outskirts of Glasgow and uh, built some pretty good working relationships with those men. And, um, and it taught me a thing or two about uh, good support or how I felt I could do good support differently. Are you a Glaswegian? No, no, I'm from the Northeast, so Aberdeenshire, and yeah. I spent my 20s in Edinburgh, so I have a more of a soft accent. So I'm relatively easy to understand, I've been told. Okay. Yeah. It's true. Can you tell so, us a bit about Inclusion WA and is it similar to the other inclusions from other states? No, so I don't, uh, I'm not sure which other organisations you would uh, be referring to, but Inclusion WA was originally founded in the late 80s under an organisation called Recreation Network. Um, it was a, initially a pilot project. At that time, people with disability were often getting support and services in um, large kind of group homes or institutions and a lot of the kind of day activities were more run in day centres 
And so Recreation Network was founded by a number of passionate people and family members who really wanted to see opportunities for uh, young folks and um, um, you know, getting involved in uh, recreational community activities just like the rest of us would. So more connecting with mainstream rather than disability specific groups. And I've got to ask you the obvious question and I'm pretty sure you won't like it, but does that mean you're, you're, if you're working on inclusion, you're working with people with less severe disabilities? No, that's a common misconception. So I think it's a really great question. In this organization, we believe that inclusion is for everyone, that everyone can find a, a valued role. But you're in... not going to just tell me about two anecdotes of people with high and complex needs that you've done successful work with while 98% of the people you work with have mild ID? Well, I think, I think the person's disability is a, is a factor, but probably their life circumstances or the, the, the amount of family support or lack of support are probably just as um, challenging when you're talking about barriers to connecting with community. Yeah. So what, you know, whether somebody has a, um, you know, like more of a profound physical disability or not, that wouldn't have any uh, bearing on whether we would um, choose to work with them or not. So that constellation of factors that, and you're talking about the social model where people are more disabled by their circumstances, which is just so freaking um, obvious. The independent assessments, which we're just starting to um, see um, driven into um, NDIS policy making, won't really be able to take that into account. Is that something you, you're on top of yet, Richard? Have you had a chance to have a look at the concept of independent assessments and what it would mean for your sort of work? Um, to be honest, I often feel a little bit out of the loop around all things NDIS and national yeah. policy. I find it it's tricky to keep up as somebody who's responsible for having oversight of the operations of an organisation like ours. Um, Let me give you the concept. Do you think it'd be possible to um, take any of the people you work with and two hours with the world's biggest expert in whatever and really understand their life circumstances and give you... Um, and give the agency an independent assessment of what their needs are? Yeah, of course not. I mean, I think the, the, the agency has a really difficult job to do around uh, creating funding plans for people and making decisions around how they can best use their resources. By the time those funding plans come to us, uh, we start again from scratch when it comes to the planning of our supports around somebody's life. Now, often we can't influence what resources are assigned to the participant, and that's 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 the right thing. We you know we should, that's as a service provider, that's not something necessarily we should get involved in influencing. But when someone comes to us, usually they already have some uh, NDIS um, funding. Our role is to try and look at those resources available and think about how can we be as useful as possible in somebody's life. It sounds like, um, and so I'd really love you to jump in here. You look at what they've got, and then part of your job becomes reconfiguring what they've got. Yeah, yeah I think so. The plan, I, I often talk to my colleagues about how the NDIS's plan is a funding plan. It's a funding allocation, and it's not somebody's actual person-centered plan. And sometimes that can get us into a bit of trouble with planners or, or uh, guardians, because if you think about what the principles of the NDIS are and even the national standards around individual outcomes, as soon as a uh, participant, a person with disability comes to this organization, we are duty and we say yes to providing a service, we're duty bound to 
do whatever it takes to be as useful as possible. And that involves meeting each person exactly where they are at that moment in time and planning our supports accordingly. And I guess that's one of the things I wanted to um, chat to you guys today about is how how to how to try and run an organization that is both flexible and responsive to the needs of every person that you work alongside rather than running an organization in, in a way that restricts the potential of its staff in their ability to be useful. Because mm, I see this this is one of the big um, things that's wrong with the disability sector is that um, staff are often inhibited in their potential to think deeply about how they can be useful in this one person's life. So I was really interested when we spoke with Kate at our last um, visit, um, she was talking about um, the prioritizing the needs of the individual person over the needs of the NDIA. And I found that a really, it's so obvious, right? But, but often when you look at the way so many other providers operate, they really find that they are, they, they're put, making themselves accountable to the NDIA first and yes. to the second. And I really like that that's, that's the, a different perspective that you and Kate um, or Vivo and Inclusion WA bring to your work in that you really see the NDIA as the funding source and you're accountable only to the person. Um, Absolutely. And I've, 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 you know, I've worked it within um, local government in Scotland and state government here in Western Australia for a short period of time. And what I've understood is that the people who work within, with, work within government know that they're limited in, uh, um, the, in the, they're kind of confined in a way in how they can influence an outcome. And service providers are the ones who can really have much more of a frontline impact on, on the outcome, you know, the circumstances you know, that someone's being supported in and, and what is the effect of those supports, positive or negative. So I think, um, sorry, Roland, on you go. Um, I was just gonna jump in with, um, Sal, do you remember your Richard Branson quote you brought um, quite a few years ago into the organization about working with staff? Oh, the one about take care of your staff and they'll take care of... Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I, read, I read his book as a young guy studying business and marketing. So can you talk to us about that? One of the things we talked to Kate at Avivo about is congruence, that you can't expect um, staff to um, put people first if staff aren't treated with a great deal of respect and autonomy or language. You know, can you help us with... Yeah, that? absolutely. So if you're running a disability mental health service provider, you have to... You have to understand that your frontline staff are the most important people in your organization. This is not rocket science. This is pretty much a basic business theory from the 80s around customer service, right? So if you're running a cafe or a plumbing service, you'll work hard to empower your frontline staff so they're competent and capable to respond to the needs of their clients. And that is what disability support needs to do as well. And what we tend to do because we tend to disempower our staff we impose, by imposing things like an NDIS funding plan or uh, a ROS, centralised rostering system, uh, which inhibits the potential of staff, your frontline staff, to be useful. And so our whole organisation, the culture of this, or, this uh, you know, organisation called Inclusion WA, is that um, the frontline staff are our most important asset, our most important marketing tool, um, and our ability to, you know, uh, recruit, induct, and then 
uh, nurture that talent over time has been one of our huge keys to success. And I'm really proud to say that um, almost every single person who now works for Inclusion WA is uh, a former mentor or a support person. So even the general manager, Jess Kane, is an ex-mentor or support person. And they all have that lived experience of, you know, trying to do whatever it takes to be useful and being flexible, being flexible and responsive and creative. And I think it's something that's missing in the NDIS conversation around what it means to be a, a really skilled support worker. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know how you've operationalized that um, autonomy. <laughs> Listen to all my um, my Your buzzwords. Speak, my I'm going to scream bingo any moment. It's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> um, how do you make it work? How do you make it work? Okay, so um, early on, uh, being a student of things like O'Brien's five service accomplishments and um, social role valorization and Wolfie's old you know, writings around normalization, um, but never saw any answers around how we could organize our organizations to work like that. How could you work alongside people to create belonging to community? And there was no answer. So I struggled, you know, initially to, to come up with ideas around how to structure ourselves as human capital just around the person. But I looked to the disability sector because obviously there were some things we were doing wrong. So I read when I first arrived in Australia, I read the shutout report in 2009. It's had a huge influence on myself and Paul Flay, our CEO, and a number of others within the organization. Really? And off the back of the shutout report and the and Productivity Commission report, I think the next year or so, we decided to change our name to Inclusion WA to make the organization solely about social inclusion. There was something happening to people within typical disability services where their, their lives were being shut out of the real world and we thought we could do better for people. And then we had NDIS to kind of contend with. So we knew that the sector was changing and we needed to change because we were pretty much 95% blocked or grant funded through um, the state government. So in the past, the state government through their grant system defined who we were, who we, were, who we worked with and what type of programs we ran. And what was needed was a, a total rethink of our organization and our culture. So we went through this cultural transformation, moving away from prescriptive programs and more to responsive services that were all designed around each individual that we worked alongside. But still, I was kind of light on answers around how to structure the organization in more of what I termed at the time an empowering service architecture. And so, you know, working with my colleagues who most of them are all still here, we came up with a different way of organizing ourselves by decentralizing our decision-making, by throwing away our rosters, literally set fire to a roster in a safe environment, of course. Um, you know, decentralizing decision-making included things like uh, uh, dissolving our HR, uh, function, uh, delegating that responsibility for recruitment to other staff who, lo and behold, actually knew the, in, knew the individual that they were supporting. Um, rostering the way that it was running before was essentially this kind of cascading effect of disempowerment, 
where our frontline staff felt felt restricted and limited in the way they could respond to the needs of the client, or the person they're supporting. And so we really had to rethink our organization from the ground up. And for me personally, I didn't look to the disability and mental, mental health service industry for inspiration. I looked at other types of businesses and I, and I you know, borrowed examples from other types of work, whether that was creative industries like you know, IT application development type firms or, or uh, other organizations who had really good records of good customer service. And the, the, the common theme was always empowering your frontline so I didn't see the disability sector as being any different. And we, together as a team, it hasn't just been me, there's been lots of people involved in this whole journey. We've collectively rethought how uh, a disability service organization should be, uh, should be structured. So can you give us a, just a quick overview of what the structure actually is? Sure, so ra rather than running programs, we have um, more geographical hubs, we call them service hubs, and they are obviously well, geographical in nature. So at the moment, to give you an example, we have uh, four, Inclusion W has four service hubs uh, within Perth Metro area and they cover a specific Perth Metro base. And within those hubs, uh, we also have our small neighborhood teams and those neighborhood teams are made up of what we call mentors. So we don't use the term uh, support workers within this organization because we feel it comes with it. Uh, some historical baggage. So mentors imply something a little bit, and perhaps it's not a perfect job title, but it implies something a bit more constructive and useful and, um, and, and focus more on personal development. And so mentors is the title for our frontline staff. So these days, Inclusion WA will do all sorts of work from helping people find a job to get connected with their local sporting club or just sometimes even, and the work that I'm probably most proud of is helping them navigate some kind of life uh, crisis or real change in their life. Mm. What kind of responsibility do you have those neighborhood teams taking on? I mean, in addition to their day-to-day -day mentoring work? Yeah, so the, the, where the um, neighborhood teams is, I mean, it's still something that we're kind of learning about. So where the mentors are actually meeting, is to provide each other with um, support, problem solving, troubleshooting, is to try and reduce the single point of failure that those staff might have on their line managers and to empower them to take a bit more control in helping debrief. I think one of the things that's lost in the NDIS conversation around, well, you know, you don't get great outcomes unless you've got great staff plus great support. This is the magic formula, right? So great staff, plus great support equals great outcomes. So your ability to attract and retain the best people with, uh, you know, who are both emotionally and intellectually really intelligent and creative types of people. And you know, if you, if you get that right and then put those people together and help them support each other, then we start to you know, really see the kind of social capital kind of grow within the organization. So the neighborhood teams, it's something that we're still, um, I guess, wondering what, what those teams could be responsible for in the future, but we're trying not to overburden them with administrative responsibilities, because with NDIS, as you know, comes a fair bit of administration around the financial side of things. But the, 
actual service managers for the geographical hubs, they're the ones who are ultimately responsible for recruitment within their geographical area. They're the ones who are also knowledgeable around their own financial sustainability. And so they, they, they're taking responsibility for their own reality. So you almost end up with these multiple nodes within an organization, all kind of self-governing their own reality and having good understanding of um, what they can control and versus some of the things that they, I guess, can't that are outside of our control, NDIS funding process, as an example. You said something ages ago that I just wanted to pick up on. <clears throat> so and all of this is so interesting. You still have, sounds like you still have a, a, a semi-hierarchy in, in, in the decentralized models with service managers, but, and I'm sure you'll talk in a moment about the different role those service managers have. But you said you burnt the rosters, and that, that says a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. One, often we do, the roster becomes a, just such a, 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 an impediment to doing things well. And, but the other thing is burning it. Um, that's a real clear ceremonial, we're making a change here um, action, isn't it? It, was, it wasn't just fun burning it. You, you knew what you were doing when you burnt it, didn't you? Unless you smoked it. <laughs> I think um, I think at the time a, n a number of colleagues had suggested things or um, tried to push gently in a certain direction, but when you're dealing with culture change, there's a tipping point really, and what it takes is um, you know somewhat of a push to get things moving in the right kind of direction. I think culture change is is hard within an existing organization. For me personally, I would be honest and I would say it would be easier for me to set up more of an individualized provider from scratch yeah. rather than go through that process of culture change again. Maybe maybe, maybe I would have energy for, for doing that once more in my working life because I'm not that old yet, but it, it certainly is hard work. And I sympathize with organizations who have more of that top-down hierarchy Roland, I would say that, you know, if we have a hierarchy still, it's an inverted one. So everything's about supporting the next layer up. So as a, as a senior manager within this now group of organizations, my job is that is more of um, um, coaching and mentoring support rather than telling people what to do. And so the leadership style that works well within this organization is more around corralling the troops and just clarifying the future direction rather than uh, necessarily telling people what to do. Because there's an intrinsic motivation that comes from, you accept a job day one at Inclusion WA and your cup is full of motivation. You're 100% you're motivated. And what we want to try and do is keep the motivation up at 100%. What organizations, all, all of us, anyone who runs an organization can recognize is we tend to put things in staff's way that's that chip away at that motivation over time and um, so we're trying desperately to not do that and keep people motivated all the way through their inclusion wa journey so you're talking about culture change and it's it's so fascinating and then how difficult it is to do it in existing organizations we're talking about burning the roster as a as part of a a journey and a symbolization of culture change. I just want to push you a bit harder on a lot of the people listening to this bus tour and, and doing the bus tour with us are from those older organizations. And 
staff didn't sign up for this. Staff didn't sign up for the sort of work. They didn't even sign up for the NDIS. They signed up to do a particular job, which doesn't exist anymore. Is it actually possible to convert a group of people that don't want to come on the journey? Do you have to lose people along the way? And if you do, you know, how, how difficult is that? Yeah, I think it, um, I think it's a really great question. I think um, probably uh, those people that won't come on the journey with you. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I've read about organizations that are really resistant to the NDIS or the idea of individualized funding and they wanted to go a different way. There's many organizations who've got out of disability altogether and focused on other things like aged care because they saw that was uh, perhaps an easier path for them. Um, but I think that one of the core things, um, one, of, one of my friends, Heather Simmons, who you may have heard of, um, one of the things that Heather Simmons talks about, she's a, a great person when it comes to training around person-centered approaches. And she'll say, you got to know what you're standing on that you're trying to lift. Okay, and so what she means by that is, what are your values? What are your core guiding principles? What are the big ideas that are almost like a lighthouse for your organization to help you guide yourself through stormy seas. If you don't have that real common uh, ground and that you agree, these are your guiding principles, the big ideas you're gonna follow, then you won't be able to, to you know, change the culture of any organization. But that was the analogy. I, I suspect we've read some of the same books or maybe I read the books a couple of generations before you did, but Ricardo Semler's Maverick, have you read that? No, I haven't. Um, it's all based on trust. So he runs this organization in Brazil where he just trusts people to do the right stuff. Yeah, great. Yeah, I and love it. it. Like trust is something that's really important. It has to be really important in what you uh, do. We talk about trust a lot. And so my colleagues will be bored of hearing me talk about this stuff. So let's talk about it in the context of great support work. Mm. Everything starts from a position of trust. Roland, if I'm supporting you in your daily needs and helping you get a job or get connected with community. I cannot be useful in your life if you and I don't have a, a founding a relationship of trust. You, know, you can't be honest with me around how you see the world or how you, you like your life to look if uh, we don't have that founding relationship of trust. And so everything starts with trust. When we employ new staff into this organization, we start from a position of trust, not mistrust. So the typical top-down hierarchy, headquarters, centralized control organization would often inadvertently without doing it deliberately, they would start from a position of mistrust and people having to earn trust over time. I think that's the wrong way of looking at your frontline staff. And so um, we look at things really differently but then we'll implement some safeguards around um, what we'll call triangulation of supports to make sure that the people we support always have someone to come to if they're concerned about something. So, so you're big on trust too, aren't you? I am. I'm, I am very big on trust. Um, and I had an interesting conversation with Aviva um, who just did a PhD on um, the things that people look for in support providers. And we had a great conversation around trust and the fact that at some point a person needs to make a leap of faith 
you know, I, I actually don't know you well enough to have had the history or to have developed trust. I have to um, take a leap of faith. And, um, and I think sometimes we really, uh, we underestimate the level of trust that people put in us. I think, I think from a senior management perspective, this leap of faith, faith thing is really core. You know, Darren Janelli at my place talked to me about this really early on in my journey with Inclusion WA. He talked about his own experience with my place and he talked about a leap of faith in the loss of control. So Inclusion WA does not define, uh, you know, even the name can be misleading. Every person that we support, their services are totally different. Every member of staff that we support, I don't even know half the time, you know, what those staff would consider their job to be because it's not my place as a senior manager to define that for them. And I think, you know, some people would look at that approach to management and suggest that that's complete madness to, to not know what your organization does exactly because it does sound a bit weird. But I think that it's brilliant because if we support, you know, I think Inclusion WA these days support around 300 people. I can't know those people intimately enough to understand what's our role in their life. And every single person we support, the needs are different almost on a daily basis. So rethinking support was always this thought around, you know, from my perspective, a leap of faith and loss of control. It's the people that we uh, work alongside, both <coughs> participants, people with disability, and our staff, frontline staff. They define our organization, not me. That has to take you down the path of the Quality and Safeguards Commission. Sorry to yeah. do this to you, Richard, but yeah, um, you're having that. Um, they promised us so much. Less. I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago called Consistent Ways of Producing Crap. Um, my concerns about where the Quality and Safeguards Commission might go. It's not cutting back red tape, it's increasing compliance, it's got a Royal Commission barking at its heels. If you're someone, you are someone who believes in trust, you are someone who believes in taking a leap of faith in supporting workers to have more autonomy, how the freak do you deal with um, all the layers of compliance that are being put upon you that really limit a lot of that sort of stuff yeah. going in the wrong way? No, it's a yeah, it's good timing with uh, the NDIS Commission coming into fruition in WA on the first of December, and it's certainly the right commission with Sam Jenkinson at least. But yeah, keep on going. Yeah, well, did you know that she used to work here? Yeah, yeah. So she is one of the inside uh, scoop. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. So yeah, big fan of Sam's. Uh, goodness. So how to answer that question? If I ran six people group homes, I'd be really nervous about the NDIS Commission. If I ran large-scale ADs, is that what they're called? Because we call them um, something different. They're probably not so complimentary. Big institutionalized approaches to providing services, you know, if they were deemed by the NDIS Commission as safe and compliant, um, then I don't want to just be safe and compliant. I want to run services that not just me, but all my colleagues actually believe in. So one, one of the foundations of any service provider as well, only run services that you actually believe are useful to people. Don't run services that you think are going to put people at risk or potentially in harm's way. So just refuse to run those services. I'd rather not do this work than be responsible for services that I didn't believe are actually going to add value and be useful in people's life. But is compliance getting in your way? 
I'll, I'll tell you that we'll make this appointment this time next year and I'll be able to answer that question more fully. We'll, okay, listen, what'll, come, what'll come up is we'll get audited within the first 12 months and they'll point out things that they're not happy with or systems that they feel strongly that we should go out and purchase and we'll have a conversation about that and we'll see where we end up. I'm sure some of their feedback will be uh, really useful and constructive to us, um, but some of it maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll debate and discuss. I want to come back to, um, if you don't mind, Roland, I want to come back to that conversation around leap of faith and loss of control, but at a slightly broader level, I want to talk about that within the context of um, organisational redesign or change management. So um, what I find interesting about um, the story with Inclusion WA, and I think it's quite similar with Avivo, is you get a real sense that um, you started on the journey, but you didn't necessarily have it fully mapped out. And you've kind of taken this leap of faith that it will continue to evolve over time. And I think often what happens with CEOs is they're not ready to start a change management process until the project plan is there and the Gantt charts and everything's kind of mapped out and specific. Um, and um, and I, I never get the sense with, about, with, of that with you and, and Kate. Can you talk a little bit about the leap of faith and the loss of control that you've taken on this journey to redesign the organisation? I just want to add one more bit to that question, which is um, to do what Sally's doing, describing what you've done, means living with uncertainty and dealing with, um, you know, a whole lot of emergent stuff, not, not knowing what's coming next. Yeah, I think um, that's, that's life. There's things you can control and there's things you can't. So I guess just embracing the things that we can control. Um, I mean, how, how do you create an organization that's more flexible and responsive yes. and you employing people that are more creative? Um, I think it, a lot of that, I think being it, it, good organizations are continually committed to improvement, right? So then people who I would admire in terms of leaders, I don't think they're ever going to be satisfied. You know, and that's where I guess I would come from. It, and that may be a little bit annoying for some, some of the people that I work with on a daily basis and never being satisfied. But um, I think we all accept that there's always ways in which we can improve. We, the feedback is built into the DNA of this organization, whether it's staff appraisals or annual surveys. You know, we're just being open. It's, I, I think being committed to continual improvement is much easier than being defensive and almost defeatist around being unwilling to accept that you can always be better. It takes so, a level of self-confidence, Richard, to be able to deal with uncertainty, to not have a roadmap. And so um, part of what you're deflecting is a level of courage and um, self-confidence that you've put into the journey. So I'll answer that one for you like that. But I want to take it a bit further with the systems and structure stuff. Another book, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, where he argues that organisations um, of more than 150, which includes everyone, um, they stop being able to communicate at a personal level. And that, you know, the, the, the people receiving services can talk to the people at the top of the services and everybody in between. Is It sounds like you're pretty modular that you, as much as possible, you're trying to create organizations in modules and yeah. what makes, so yeah, take it where you want to take it. 
Yeah, so it's, it's uh, I mean, that's been great in terms of only recruiting for um, more senior positions internally. We've never advertised, certainly not in my time, the last, um, say, so eight years, I guess, roughly, since we started the kind of cultural change side of things. We've always focused on recruiting from the, from the front line. So that's something I'm really, really proud of. I think, I think we want to be able to, we, we do have positions and we do have line managers. So it's not completely uh, organic and totally free for all out of control. I think it's organized. Some, some colleagues might have described it in the past as being somewhat organized chaos. And maybe we're not as good as other organizations at writing policies and some of those sorts of um, tasks. But um, I think the cultural is the focus on culture and always trying to create teams of support around people. That's what we're trying to do. One of my uh, old friends once was, she was studying, um, she was doing her teacher training in Scotland and she was, she worked uh, two of her work placements. Uh, one was at a private school and, you know, lots of resources. The teachers were all wonderful, really clever, obviously, you know, well-paid. And she worked at another school, which was more challenging kind of demographic from, a, from one of the rougher kind of parts of Edinburgh. And she loved that work placement a lot more. And the, the reason for that was the, the culture of support and, you know, encouragement. Even though that there were some really challenging things she had to deal with through the day, it was the support that she had around her that was the thing that really made the difference. And so I think when we take that to one of the key ingredients for success when it comes to running a disability service provider is around building networks of support around each other because we're dealing with sometimes really complex situations and this stuff is hard to know what to do and what's the ethical thing to do and not doing that in isolation I think is really important and potentially that's one of the things we got wrong in the early days of some of our frontline staff starting to feel more isolated as they moved out from being based in a physical office, more in terms of working in community. So we're still looking for ways to do that better, where staff internally feel included, that their different points of view are valued and that they'll always have someone to turn to when they need support. So a long time ago, I thought that my job was all about focusing on the person with disability and their families and what they wanted to get out of their staff and their services. But now I realize a lot more that it's really 50-50 about supporting the, the person, the client, and a huge amount of effort goes into supporting our staff and talent management and their PD and offering them careers and life which matters, where they feel like they're contributing something that's way bigger than themselves. Um, so, so what are the practical ways that you bring mentors together to, to be community? Yeah, it's a good question again. I think we're, it's something that we're always learning and changing. Uh, the recent experience through COVID saw us all get really good really quickly at working virtually. So via Zoom and Microsoft Teams, the way that our teams embraced that and cracked on and found ways to support each other was very impressive. Um, I think I think that in the future there'll be we just keep trying different things and we'll keep asking our colleagues for feedback. I think the geographical hubs lend itself really well. The mo modular kind of architecture that you refer to, Roland, 
that those it's more important that those geographical hubs know each other than they would know, say, me as a senior manager or one of the other senior managers within the organization, because they're the main people they're going to ask for support from. Uh, but I think we're going to keep trialing new initiatives. Our general manager, Jess Kane, is about to try uh, like a mentor summit, like a support work summit internally and bringing in some uh, great people to talk about, you know, big ideas and then creating conversations within the organization. It used to be that we ran, you know, all of the whole of organization face to face in person. Uh, sessions every year they were called praxis this is sort of mindful reflection but as the organization's grown you know we would employ more than 180 staff across the group now because we're a group structure um, that becomes practically quite challenging so we'll look at technology like how you 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 know uh, creating podcasts recording videos and some of those sorts of things having q a's online and trying to answer colleagues' questions. So in answer to your, your question, it's something that we'll continue to learn about and we'll get feedback from uh, other people internally around how they want to be communicated and engaged with, but we'll also seek inspiration from other organizations much larger than ours to see how they do that well. So it's similar to that Avivo's commitment to citizenship for their, for their team as well as um their people they support. Yeah, I guess I haven't had a huge amount to do of late with uh, with Aviva. One of the things I've liked is they uh, you know they more provide the kind of support in people's homes gym generally. But when they do that, they're thinking about the person's whole life, not just their accommodation service. Mm-hmm. You know, even terms like accommodation service or community support service, they're inhibiting mm-hmm. people's potentially useful. Now, I'm a every one of us is one human being trying to help another human being. So when you take it down to that level, we want to encourage and motivate staff not to in, inhibit their usefulness, put things in their way that stop them from uh, being creative. You hear stories, and you folks would have heard these stories as well. Some organizations will employ great staff who want to think creative and they notice things that aren't okay about this person's life that they're supporting. Like this person's life could be so much better if we did A, B and C. And in the wrong type of organization, those people are in the, they're, they're labeled as troublemakers. And sometimes they have performance management sessions because they're you know, what that organization might call stirring the pot and, and really, they're the right sort of people who should be doing the job. They're, they're thoughtful, they're creative, they're deeply invested in the person that they're supporting and they want to be useful. And yet, they're told by the organization, no, you can't do that. And if you continue thinking like that, we're probably going to fire you. Richard, this has been sensational. It's, um, you can always pick when um, there's, there's a, a very strong congruence that you're real, what you're doing. I've been around long enough and done enough of these bus tours to know when you've, you've hit a service that's really trying to do what the people are telling you they're trying to do. If, um, when people are listening, if, if I'm a CEO of a, an organisation that's really struggling, there's a bunch out there and they're very threatened by the way funding's changing and they, they get their board to agree to fundamental cultural change. 
and they like what you're doing. And, you know, we listen to that Richard Orr guy and we'd like to go on a bit of that journey. What, what three tips would you give that CEO trying to do fundamental culture change in a disability organisation? You can only give them three. Oh, geez, that's an easy question, Roland. Cool. <laughs> so uh, I know that, the, you know, the first one that comes to mind that's, that's the easy one and then I'll probably start to struggle is more around setting those guiding principles. The big ideas that you subscribe to um, the big value statements, belief statements. Some people would call them bumper stickers for your organization. You know, if you can get agreement around that, around how you want your organization to look and feel in the future, I think that the, that, that goes a long way to then trying to impart some kind of culture change. And, and just to quote Heather Simmons again, you gotta know what you're standing on that you're trying to lift. It's a great quote, I've never heard it, it's great. Yeah just to give you that solid base. And that's got to be agreed by your board and your senior leadership team. I think the other thing is just um, get, uh, I think being willing to take that leap of faith in the loss of control. Ego is the enemy when it comes to leadership. If you're a CEO or you know, some kind of senior manager from another disability service provider, you have to understand that real leadership is actually making other leaders, not, not being the the biggest, loudest, or you know, gen gender sort of deepest voice in the room, um, and recognizing talent and investing in those people to to take your organisation forward. And for me, probably the third thing, just because it's something that I'm really proud of with our own organisation, is accept that your frontline staff are the most important people in your organisation. They're your future leadership. They're your future CEOs and um, just throw all your support behind those people and you'll be amazed where you end up. That's three, I think, Roland. Yeah, it's really good. So where's Inclusion WA going next, Richard? So onwards and upwards, I think for Inclusion WA, the pace of our kind of evolution and growth has been pretty slow and steady and led by the great people that we employ. Um, but we have plans to extend Inclusion WA's approach to individualised services, that's agency managed services, into the eastern states. We have a number of colleagues who potentially be relocating to uh, Brisbane in a short period of time. Uh, we have also established the organisation under a group kind of structure. So that I'm now employed by the parent entity, Australian Inclusion Group. Inclusion WA is kind of the founding organization from which everything is sprung from that. Inclusion Solutions is an organization that's focused on community development work, all within the same idea of trying to create more welcoming community, communities that everyone, regardless of their background or ability levels, has a place to feel like they belong. And so Inclusion Solutions are doing some fantastic work in the community development space. And also, we recently established a new organization called Plan Navigators. And Plan Navigators is looking to help people who are funded through the NDIS take an increased level of control of their supports and services. And so that's through looking um, towards uh, real flexible implementations of plan management plans and also helping people take steps to, towards self-management and potentially employing their own support staff. So there's a lot going on. And I'll keep we'll always just keep learning and keep uh, evolving the organization there's a fair bit of excitement within 
this group uh, at the moment and some fantastic colleagues just showing some real inspirational leadership. And so I'll take the opportunity to thank all my colleagues for the great work they continue to do within the group. Richard, that was so fantastic. Thank you so much for um, giving us a look around today. We've really enjoyed the visit. Just so much um, meat in what you've said, so much to um, debrief on and learn from. So thank you so much for giving us your time so generously. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there is so many, you know, great examples of great support happening all around Australia, I'm sure, and really appreciate the role that you guys play in helping us celebrate that work. Good on you, Richard. Sally and Roland, do we have a business case? Absolutely. Yeah, we totally do. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is Richard talks quite a bit about social capital. I don't think we talk about financial capital at all, but he talks about creating a sense of belonging and community, about decentralised decision-making, about ditching the rosters, no HR function, yay, and really function as an organisation that puts staff and puts participants and people first. Where do you reckon the financial underpinnings sit with all of it? Uh, well, I, I firmly believe that Richard and his team also have really strong commercial capabilities and we didn't talk about them, um, but uh, knowing Richard and knowing his background, they absolutely bring that. I think that the discussions that we're having are not about replacing commercial capabilities with this social capital, but more of a yes and. So you have to be commercially capable, but what really elevates their business um, to the next level is that commitment to social capital. When reviewing my case notes on this one and seeing if we did have a business case sale, I, the more I review the stuff, the more I listen to what Richard said to us, I feel there's such detail and such, um, again, you can't copy what he's doing, but prima facie, they've got a case. They're growing from Western Australia into Queensland. They must be doing okay. They can't be going backwards in, in Western Australia to be growing into Queensland. So it, it's really quite exciting to see a model that, you know, that's unpacked things, that's begun, a, begun again in a lot of ways, that is doing the, it's a cliche, you know, the inverted pyramid where senior staff support frontline but they're doing it, it's working, and yes, definitely a business case. I, I, think, I think what we need to keep in mind is that their growth strategy is also very different to how many other organisations are approaching growth in that they're taking a minimally viable service approach to their expansion into Queensland. So they're starting with one person um, and, um, and if it doesn't work, then it's not the end of the world. So just kind of different as well. So when we first started these investigations, Sal, we didn't quite know where we'd land, but here we've landed with a really important business case that a lot of other organisations can learn from. It's just great. Yeah, I love it. It's a whole nother way of um, business strategy about defining that vision for what it is that you want to achieve and then putting the rest of it in faith and loss of control going for it one step at a time and one of the things we do is talk about Richard Branson and um, you're a bit of a Branson fan do you remember the stuff we talked about with Branson well the thing that I love about Branson is his commitment to treating staff well and then trusting them to take care of your clients your customers your participants whatever you it is you want to call them and that's one of the dominant themes of business case investigations <laughs>